this is Captain Lee, and you're listening to the Andertons Podcast. It's the captain here for another Captain Meets uh, with, you know, arguably um, the, 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 you know, the guitarist's guitarist, uh, to, coin a, to coin a sort of a, a well-used phrase here. So with uh, the very lovely Guthrie Govan. Greetings. Uh, who's taken some time out of an insanely busy schedule uh, for the last, what, two or three years? It doesn't seem to stop, does it? Yeah. Um, it's, it's been crazy. It is. So we're going to do like a, a, a Captain Meets kind of format. So we're not going to try and do, you know, tutorial or stuff like that. So I thought it'd be a good opportunity to try and just sort of get to know you a bit better and, you know, go back to, you know, your early sort of guitar playing memories and and, um, and take you through to sort of, you know, now and the future. So... Um, what was your what was your kind of family background? Was it a musical family that you grew up in? Yes, I would say the main thing I learned from my family was how to listen to music. Yeah, um, there was quite a lot of vinyl floating around at home. Excellent stuff. And it was one of my earliest memories is seeing how people behaved when a new album came into the house. Yeah, and there was this almost religious ceremony where they put the circle of petroleum byproducts on the turntable and then sit back and absorb it. Yeah. So I, I realised when I was a tiny person, oh, music yeah. is a serious thing. It's not wallpaper. Yeah. It's do, an art do you form. think that's, and that I suppose is different now? Is it? Is it? Is you know a lot of young people's exposure to music perhaps is is more disposable? It's not that religious yeah, experience. For, for a lot of listeners, it's it's less religious. Yes, because yeah. there's more music, it's more freely available. So yeah. I think there's less need for someone to spend a lot of time really getting intimate with something like an album. Yeah. Arguably the album as an art form. Yeah. Is not the as sleeve notes as it and was. the artwork yeah. and yeah, I, and the I, idea it's a song cycle. It's yeah. kind of 40 minutes worth of music and you're supposed to start at the beginning, turn yes. it over halfway through. Yeah. 
can't just yeah. sort of skip tracks because you didn't like the yeah. first 20 seconds of it. You know, you've yeah. got to absorb it, haven't you? And what kind of music was in the, the, the Govan sort of household then um, at that time? I'd say a lot of 50s rock and roll. Oh, okay. And a lot of 60s blues rock type stuff. There was no shortage of Hendrix, Beatles, Stones, Dylan, yeah. Leonard Cohen, all that kind of stuff. But one of the earliest things that really excited me was hearing pre-Army Elvis. Right. You know, so just early sort of rock and roll. Guitar. Right, okay. I later discovered he had the same birthday as me, which was oh, cool. extra significant. Uh, I loved all that stuff, you know, like Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. And like, when you're an idiot child, there's something about 50s rock and roll it's just easy to respond to. Because oh, harmonically, is. there's no rocket science always, going on. I, I, I always think if you want the absolute guaranteed, you know, family get together, need to put some music on that everybody, you know, from the five-year-old to the 95-year-old is going to get into, it's it's outcomes, you know, a Chuck Berry greatest hits album. You just can't go wrong, can you? It's just, it's all foot tapping yeah. stuff, isn't it? Um, well, it worked for me. And what, were either of your parents musicians? My dad knew about six chords. Okay. And then, as he charitably pointed out to me, so in those days, I enough to be I professional. I would have learned more chords, but then you showed up. <laughs> <laughs> so he showed me everything he knew when I was very small. Yeah, because um, I, I remember reading somewhere you you were started playing guitar at an age where I think most people would consider kids wouldn't have an attention span long enough to really pick much up. So, I mean, I know it's probably too far back to have any really vivid memories, but you know, what 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 was it about the guitar you think that that you know, as a as a three or four year old kid, you just sort of went, oh no, hang on, this is. I want to do this. Honestly, the difference between the guitar and all the other instruments was there was a guitar in the house. Right. We didn't have a piano, we didn't have a trumpet, but there yeah. was like a nylon string, battered yeah. Spanish beast lying in the corner. Yeah. And I remember learning that chord <laughs> back when my fingers were, probably weren't long enough to reach the wound yeah. strings, that's all they could manage. Yeah. But that's one of my earliest memories, just learning nice. D. Yeah. But that's yeah. still, because again, I, my little girl is, is three now and I, you know, we've, I've got a little ukulele at home that's about the right, but she doesn't, she doesn't perceive it as anything other than something to go and bash for two minutes until it's boring and then, you know, off playing with other toys. So, and I think she's probably indicative of most kids of her age. So clearly there were early signs in your life that, that you were going to be, um, you know, a little bit more obsessive maybe about the, the, the instrument than your average person. Okay, so you're using your daughter as exhibit A. Yes. I guess maybe there is some nature as well as some nurture in yeah. my formative years. Yeah. It's hard to, to say with stuff like that because it's, it's too personal. You can't yeah. be objective about it. Yeah. So those music did make sense to me a very long time ago. Oh, cool. And then 
you know, can you remember any kind of significant milestones, you know, maybe between the ages of, you know, three or four and, you know, 10 or 12, or maybe where it became, you know, were they like, do you remember a first band or, a, you know? I remember a first gig okay. when I was five. Oh, you're kidding me. Uh, don't, don't be too impressed. You weren't there. <laughs> no. I'm fairly sure I sucked. But it's okay. If you're that tall, it's okay not to be awesome. I suspect still mummy and daddy were the proudest people in the room. You know, it's just like little Guthrie playing a gig at five. That's insane. But it was a bunch of my dad's friends from work. Yeah. And I got up and played a bunch of Elvis songs with them. And that was my light bulb moment. That's when I realised, you know, this is what music is for. Yeah. You get to make this disgusting, obnoxious noise on a stage and you yeah. create this energy and throw it out there and then the crowd gives you something back. It's like, wow, they, they like it. They're clapping, yeah. they're smiling. This is amazing. I get, yeah, you, you discovered that at five, whereas I guess most of us are probably waiting until we're 15 or something to, to, to sort of get that first sort of gig vibe. Um, so, so, I mean, I... I, I you know, I'm, I said, but as a, as a relatively, you know, relatively new parent, you know, watching this little girl grow up, it's it's quite hard to comprehend how. Um, were, were you a confident? You know, was it, do you think it had an inner confidence, or was it? Is it? Has the music always enabled you to um, interact with other people? You know, at a sort of a different level to. Yeah, I'd be incredibly awkward if I couldn't play music. Uh, right. I like the idea there's something I can do yeah. with some degree of competence. <laughs> uh, even back as a kid, there were two things I could do yeah. at a very young age. One was like play simple songs on a guitar, and the other one was I learned to read, just reading books when yeah. I was stupidly young. Right, okay. So I kind of took comfort in those things, and they became my world. Yeah, you must have had a, you must have had, you must have been predisposed, I suppose, to just perhaps absorb you know whether it was you know written or music or whatever but I, I mean I, it's fascinating really because I, I'm I know we're going to sort of skip a big chunk of life out and we'll come back to it in a second but there's I'm I'm forever looking for that strand of DNA in guys that take guitar playing to a whole other level um, and I, I'm fairly sure it's rooted in some sort of obsessive compulsive behavior that just sort of says look um, you know, there's the, the something that draws me to that guitar that that um, makes it okay to just sacrifice. You know, I don't want to do anything else. I'm not interested in in all the other kind of frivolity that yeah. uh, you know youngsters will go and do. Uh, and then you know, there's a period during your your life, uh, you know, during that childhood stage and teenage stage, and and somehow you just come out the other end of that with just a whole different level of technique and understanding to what I'm going to say normal people but you know I, I, you know as in people that maybe just went yeah I'm going to I'm going to play guitar and I'll I'll, I'll do uh, you know two hours practice a week you know and then of course you get to 16 and you, yeah. you're okay but well, it's the guys that live sleep and breathe it you know just at well, a different I level I guess it's always a little bit perilous to try and psychoanalyze yourself but I will attempt to anyway I guess in those early early days music was something of a safe haven it was a retreat it mm -hmm. was always nice to come home from school and yeah. I was a weird kid at school I remember okay. going there on the first day everyone knew the rules of football and I didn't right whereas I knew a bunch of chords and I was astonished to learn how many of these other people the same height and age as me yeah didn't play an instrument it's like, this is bizarre. I, I lack the training to deal with this new information. I thought everyone could play Elvis songs. Um, so like, music was this thing that where I, I would enter the world of music when I got yeah. home and everything suddenly made sense. 
And, and I mean, you and I are similar. I think you're a year older than I am, so that doesn't really count in terms of sort of, you know, we'll have grown up with the same chart music and the same, you know, Radio 1 playlists and all that kind of stuff. Did you ever feel, you know, because I, I certainly remember that, that, you know, my early memories, so I guess I'd have been probably eight or nine, something like that. You know, I, I remember everybody at school being a massive Adamant fan. And I was a bit weird because my dad was like a big Steely Dan fan and, and um, actually some other sort of classic rock, you know, sort of Free yeah. and Zeppelin and things like that. Did you, did you get a sense that, you know, your musical tastes were not, you know, the popular? Totally, yeah. yeah. And did that, was that ever awkward or did that make you, you know, how, how did that, did you find sort of kindred spirits that you could kind of jam with or did you feel quite sort of isolated in, in that There sense? was a degree of isolation. Uh, I mean, I, I switched off throughout the 80s. Right. Just like I have no interest in popular music of today. Yeah. Um, I'm happy in my world of blues rock and a bit of jazz and yeah. a bit of classical and whatever I hear on TV. Yeah. And just whatever music excites me rather than whatever music is current. Yeah. So I never could have hopped on the Duran Duran Spandau Ballet kind of yeah. wagon. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of, uh, it's again, it's quite difficult to to make those parallels with, you know, anybody that's watching this that's that's maybe under the age of... 20 will not have grown up where there's really only one popular radio station with one popular yeah. uh, playlist and if you didn't like Duran Duran or Spandau or Human League or and there were it wasn't all yeah. bad you know you had things like Dire Straits didn't you in, in amongst that time and you know, the police yeah. and stuff like that that were charting with good well, music. Meanwhile someone was making an album called Fair Warning you know but <laughs> yeah so, I, I don't remember that being rammed down my throat yeah, to the same extent. But that would have been quite hard. That would not have been accessible unless you could go to the record store and know yeah. what you wanted to buy. And It was probably more accessible on the other side of the Atlantic. Mm. I'm guessing more hairy stations. rock with guitar solos was probably a bigger part of yeah. culture yes. in the US than it was here. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, I that, remember it, just primitive digital synths forever. And that seemed to be the DX soundtrack 7. of the yeah. 80s. Yeah, even the seventies. We glamorise the seventies. We choose to remember yeah. like, songs in the key of life or Asia by Steely Dan. But yeah. I was there, as were you. We were small people in the seventies, and actually, yeah. it was mostly Bay City Rollers, wasn't it? I certainly yeah. don't remember. I don't remember any being able to access any form of non-chart music unless you went out of your way to go to buy it. You know, yeah. or, or your dad. You know, your mum and dad bought it. You know, there wasn't. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly my source of entertainment, yeah. just rifling through my parents' fairly extensive music yeah. collection. It's like there's this whole treasure trove of stuff here that's yeah. stood the test of time. Yeah. And if they haven't sold this vinyl or burned it or whatever, yeah. then there must be something timeless and pleasing about it. That, that, that idea of my dad sort of, you know, saying that if you want to listen to Dark Side of the Moon, it is you put the album on and you switch all the lights off and you just sit there and you absorb you yeah. let you let them tell that musical story and you just think nowadays yeah it's it's you download a track on your iPhone and you give it 10 seconds before you decided if you like it or not and then it's just different isn't it I, and, and I don't even go I'm not different bad just different different yeah it's possible people um, are getting better at multitasking or something like that yeah but the, there is it seems to me some kind of death of the attention span yeah 
Yeah, no, I, I would, I would definitely Maybe you could trace that. that back to MTV. Yeah, I, I suppose it's, it's... Everything it's, had to be short bursts just to keep people... Yeah, and, and, you know, and the 80s, I think, you know, I think we can have some rose-tinted goggles about, you know, the, the 80s. You know, there were, there was some, you know, Guns N' Roses and Aerosmith and, you know, ACDC were all putting out, you know, good, you know, rock, you know, sort of good guitar-driven kind of rock music. Oh, do you know what? I hate, I hate using the word good or bad in music. Just music that was of my taste versus not of yeah. my taste, I suppose. <laughs> Let's go back to let, let's. So you've gone through your you know sort of childhood. You, you know you're obviously early starter on guitar, early gigging performer. Um, certainly devoting your life to it. Can you remember a time in your childhood where uh, you just thought this is how I need this is what I want to do with my life now, as opposed to you know doing it as a fun hobby? Um, that would have been later. I mean, the next milestone I should tell you about was probably when I was about 13, mm -hmm. 14 years old and started hanging out with older kids at yeah. school who had denim jackets with many patches sewn on and I discovered I could tap into this whole world of the, the heavier side of things Yeah. Um, and discovered there was all this other stuff you could do on the guitar. I didn't know what tapping was or what sweet picking was. I was kind of happy in my blues meets rock meets jazz yeah. world and suddenly I discovered there's a whole other vocabulary for the instrument and the older kids would take great delight in feeding the hippie kid like a cassette full of Dio or something like that or Metallica. Okay. Yeah. It's like, go home and listen to this, and then come back when you've digested it, we'll give you something else to corrupt so this your is, mind this further. this is uh, mid-80s we're at now, yeah. aren't we, sort of early to mid-80s. So, so there was basically I mean, one week where I heard Steve Vai for the first time. Okay. I heard Steve Vai before I heard Eddie Van Halen. Right. It was the same week when I heard Tony McAlpine and Ingve, and it was around the same time I heard Frank Zappa, okay, for the first time. So this was a humongous that was overload just a lot of it to just, take in. Yes, yeah. but and 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 how did you um, sort of process that? You know, what would, how would you, you know, master this whole new technique? And you know, what was a what was a typical day in the life of Guthrie? You know, in those days, because you're obviously balancing school with guitar playing. Yeah, um, I was pretty good at school. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't struggle too much with the academic side of things so I would make sure all the schoolwork was done yeah I, it, it kind of mattered to me not to fail any exams or anything like that I never really allowed that to happen but having got that out of the way I did spend a lot of time with the guitar was it was it uh you know wake up in the morning try and get you know 20 minutes in before you have to go and have your breakfast and go to school and then come home and well it was more after school was it an after school um, thing? It's like wake up it's like, okay school beckons let's get school out of the way get homework yeah. out of the way now instrument and I'll yeah. just play it till I fell asleep See, that, and then wake up and play some more. That's the difference, isn't it? Look at the, there's an attitude thing here. Just that little, you know, I mean, I certainly remember when, when I was uh, learning to play the clarinet at school, it was, um, it was because my parents had told me, you know, you know, we've bought you a 
good boozy and hawks clarinet and you've got to go and see mr smith you know on the tuesday after lunchtime for your clarinet lesson and you must practice your half an hour it's like yeah. oh, go, you know but you obviously didn't approach well practice well, is such an ugly word isn't it if yes. you told me back then what you're doing is practicing an instrument that would have been somehow a turn off right i would have felt less inclined to do it yeah because practice implies discipline and hard work and concentration and yeah. what i thought i was doing was playing Right. And the implications of that word are yeah. many-fold, aren't they? Um, and what would you play? Would you play to albums or just play yeah, on your own? I spent a lot of time just jamming along with albums. Um, how much theory were you, you know, how, how, how much were you making a conscious effort to try and understand what you were doing or was it very much just, you know, all by ear? And um, Well, I tried to figure out some stuff about music theory anyway because it fascinated me that it was possible to write music down. Yeah. There's a secret hieroglyphic language, and I wanted to understand the mechanics of that and how it worked. Yeah. So I, I knew the basics of music theory. And then yeah. something, something good actually happened in the 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to say that, just yes. for the sake of balance. Uh, one good thing that happened in the 80s was um, people like Ingve turned up and said yeah. it's okay to have flawless technique. Or someone like Joe Satriani would turn up and say it's yeah. okay to know all these unspellable Greek names for modes. There's yeah. no shame in knowing what you're doing. And before that, I think it was pretty un-rock and roll oh, to I know see. too much about how music worked. Because it's funny, my... Uh, earlier experiences with the guitar I think were towards the end of that where it became uncool to not know all that and then yeah. of course the early 90s the big Britpop explosion and you know went flipped it back the other way to when it is cool to play the guitar if you yeah. only know three chords so it's a really interesting kind of throughout the 80s you think it's sort of done that whole starts yeah. uncool to be technically super super proficient and with a heavy theory knowledge to by the time it got to the end almost feeling like you couldn't play the guitar unless you were willing to go on that journey yeah i guess it's cycles isn't it mm. but i certainly remember meeting the occasional kind of grizzled local blues hero who would tell me stuff as a kid so that you shouldn't learn all that theory stuff and sight reading that will destroy your natural feel and in retrospect obviously that kind of opinion yeah. can only come out of fear and yes. insecurity yeah why would you tell a kid that? Yeah, that, that, there, there is that mythology, isn't there? I yeah. guess that's that. So how do you balance that? Because I, I would say I, I think that, that there is a danger and you do see it, um, particularly with, with uh, particularly I think with people that I meet that, that maybe don't go and play with other musicians and don't expand their horizons. There is a danger that you can become a slightly robotic, technique-driven player and lose some of that feeling and emotion that you know the, the blues guys would say that that's what it's all about but you don't your playing doesn't seem to it hasn't not, it, your understanding of technique hasn't held you back in any way you know your playing is just as full as expression and feeling as well as you know yeah. <laughs> every mode well, there is under the sun how, how do you how well, do you because that's what matters like if you can't play one note so yeah. that it, it means something if you can't invest some of your identity and some of what you're feeling into the notes you're playing, then yeah. why are you playing? Um, at that point, it ceases to be art and it starts to be Super Mario, <laughs> which of course is valid, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with doing the Super Mario thing and seeing if you can get the number a little higher than it was the last time. But it's not all of music, it's just an aspect of music. But that's not technique's fault, that's not theory's fault. I think yeah. sometimes that's the way it's portrayed. 
yeah. to aspiring students of the instrument. And if someone gets this idea that what they have to do is perfect their technique and learn all of the theory, yeah. and then they'll be good, yeah. that's where it falls apart. Yeah. Um, it, it's great to have technique, it's great to know about theory, but ultimately your goal is to absorb all of that so it can just be running in the background. Become second nature. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff a computer does that you don't see on the desktop because it would yeah. just be distracting. Yeah. It's happening secretly. And that's where theory should end up. Yeah. Sort of buried somewhere deep within you. And you can access it when you need it, but you're not consciously thinking about it. Yeah. And I guess that's the bit that, uh, and you know, for me as a player, as a, you know, a relatively not late starter, but you know, late in terms of wanting to take it seriously. I think I avoid technique because if I am thinking about technique, I don't have the brain power to process anything else at the same time. So I, I just, where I'm most comfortable is to say, look, I, will, I know what I know, and, and I'm just gonna take that and use that to best express what I feel works within the, the music that I'm playing to. Yeah. But I completely agree that, you know, the, the watching someone like you playing, you know, and you know, lots of other guitar players who are taking, as you say, just have that theoretical understanding of music as second nature, and they're doing essentially the same as what I'm doing, but just with I've got I've got three colours on my palette, and you've got three hundred colours on your palette, you know, and it's just well, surely it all comes down to the music you hear in your head. Yeah. If you just close your eyes and imagine yourself creating some amazing music, what does it sound like? And then what kind of toolkit do you need yeah. to make that a reality, to get it out of your mind and coming through a speaker? Yeah. And that'll be different for everyone because it's a mixture of your personality and yeah. everything you've ever heard. First, you know, is the first big break for you when you won the Guitarist Magazine uh, award, or we, did you have it? Was there a break before then that was bringing you know, sort of making you realise that you were going to be a career guitar player? I, for, for the longest time, I just didn't think in terms of turning this thing that was natural and enjoyable, yeah, into a job. 
if anything, I would be reluctant to cheapen it by turning it into a source of income when really it was just this spiritual release. Um, music was a friend, you know, why turn it into a slave? Okay. Kind of so I was resistant to that until I found myself at Oxford University reading English. Mm -hmm. And it just hit me after about a year of being there. I'm reading fewer books now than I was before <laughs> I got this place at Oxford. Whereas I am playing several nights a week in a funk band yeah. and having a great time. And Mike Varney is responding to my cassette demo that I've sent to him and telling me he likes what I do and would I consider making a shrapnel album. And all of that was going on. And I guess the Guitarist of the Year competition, yeah. probably a similar kind of time. I remember feeling thoroughly torn by all these different influences and just decided I have to pick one thing. Um, and just that, watching myself from a distance, it's like, what? How does this person behave? You know, what clues are there here? And I realised I should. Were your family supportive around you? Because I can imagine that's it. Like you know, place at Oxford University is like that's the dream, isn't well, it? It's, it's just a like great way academic. to make your grandparents happy. Yeah, know? but, but if you don't know why you're there, yeah, it started to bother me that other people would kill for this opportunity, yeah. and I'm kind of squandering it because I don't know why I'm here. Yeah, I think I'm here because I found it relatively easy. Yeah. And to meet music and the whole literature thing are aspects of the same big picture. You know, yeah. it's all language. So, yeah. so, so, you, you, I, I, you know, I, I, I remember the first time I met you was obviously after you'd won the Guitarist of the Year competition, and then you started teaching at the, the local music school here a little bit. Um, and then I guess not long after that, uh, the Erotic Cakes kind of thing happened didn't it which even now I still think stands up as a you know just a fantastic you know set of guitar music you know to, that combines you know the good songs with insane guitar playing and musicianship from all the guys that are on that album but you know that tell us a little bit about that kind of the process of making erotic cakes and all that, you know, the, was that years and years worth of songs kind of going into? Yes. It's a, a strange feeling for me now when I do a clinic and I yeah. say, and this next song is called, and some heckler will say, Waves! Yeah. I wrote Waves when I was like 19 or 20. Yeah. It's and a... I'm very visibly not 19 or 20 <laughs> anymore. So it's a strange thing to look at the kind of incubation time, yeah. like how long, it, how much time elapsed between writing that and finding a bunch of people who want to hear it. Yeah. So it's kind of refreshing in a way to think that that well, didn't have an expiry date. You know, it people still want to hear dated. it, and that's a nice feeling. Yeah, but it's also surreal. Um, but so, did you, you know, did you feel? Did it put pressure on you because it was actually? I don't even remember at the time. Was it instantly well received, or ha has it taken sort of time to seed itself? Um, okay, my whole chronology there is a little bit hazy. I remember it was actually Paul Cornford. Yeah, who kind of pushed me to make the album okay. and put in a lot of time and effort to make the album actually happen. Yeah, I was like, well, okay, I guess it couldn't do any harm to record a decent-sounding version of these songs. Yeah, I'm not sure if anyone will care because this was before the whole YouTube thing took off, wasn't it? It was of before course. people figured out how to use the internet. Yeah. Um, so, so I suppose yeah, unless you've got music, unless you've got some sort of label behind you, which probably wouldn't have picked up. You know that style, the genre of music. Yeah. Yeah. How do you get the word out? That's the tough bit, isn't it? 
even to the extent it, it was hard at first to figure out how well the album was doing or how many yeah. people were actually hearing it. Yeah. Uh, now it's very easy to figure out. It's easy to count likes or to count yeah. hits or views or whatever. Uh, that album was being made just on the, the cusp yeah. of all the online developments that we take for granted now. Um, Is that can people still buy that album? They certainly can. Is that just a, yeah. an iTunes thing? Is it or it's an iTunes thing? Or you could go to jtcmerch.com and buy a lovely physical copy. Yeah, uh, it's because it, it, it's. I mean, most of you guys will have. Uh, most of the guys watching will will have undoubtedly have seen something that you've done on on YouTube using one of the tracks off that album. But it, there's nothing, you know. Do the right thing, people. If you enjoy listening to it, you know. Do something that generates a little bit of income for Guthrie. Yeah, into... I clearly need food. <laughs> but it, it's, it's as I said, that was a you know that, that was a, a, a ridiculous album that that um, you know really uh, propelled you onto the kind of like you know boom here I am. Um, and so what, what you know career wise, did you start getting you know did you start getting touring offers sort of once that album had kind of come out, or what, what happened after that? Well, I should rewind for a, a little bit mm -hmm. and fill in some gaps there. Like Post-university, I ended up working at McDonald's for about a year and a half because I didn't know how to make a living out of music. I'd yeah. kind of done this dramatic severing of the link yeah. with academia. And it's like, okay, I'm actually totally screwed and totally on my own, and there is no established career path. So in the end, I had to invent a job for myself. So I thought, okay, what's something that comes naturally to me that yeah. other people would struggle with. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm totally self-taught, so in a way I'm an utter imposter, but my ear got fairly good yeah. because it had to. Yeah. If, I, if I wanted to learn something as a kid, I would just have to listen to a record or a tape over and over again. So I thought, how can I use that? How can I use my ear? I know, maybe I could be a transcriber for a guitar magazine. And there weren't any positions being advertised anywhere, so. I just transcribed some of the hardest stuff I could find and sent it off. Dear Guitar Techniques magazine, here's an entirely unsolicited Sean Lane transcription. Please give me work. And they did. Yeah. So that was my kind of first rung on the ladder, just working as a transcriber. And it was through being a transcriber, I think, that some of the schools started to reach out. Right. And said, so we, we note that you can transcribe Hank Marvin and John Petrucci and Tuck Andrus or whatever. We like you, will you come and work at our establishment? So have I got, I've got the chronology slightly wrong then in that, so what, I thought Erotic Cakes was kind of mid-90s or is it? No, it was kind of mid-noughties. Oh, okay, sorry then, yeah, I've skipped the the are, entire 10 years of your yeah, life out. <laughs> no, some of the songs are very old. Right. Um, but yeah, I, from the schools thing I started to meet people who are professional musicians who didn't play guitar. Yeah. And that was kind of a, a pivotal thing. Yeah. It's all well and good to hang out with guitar players all the time, but really, if you hang out with the rest of the musical community, you have something to offer them, and vice versa. You suddenly feel more useful. Was, was there, was there uh, a, a, an instrumentalist that you felt particular synergy with? Is there, you know, when well, you're... You, the the you, key point of this story is it was through working at the ACM in Guildford that yeah. I met Mike Sturgis. Yeah who was the head of drums there at the time, but also the drummer for the band Asia. Yeah. And then Asia, this would have been about 99, maybe 2000, Asia were looking for a session guitar player to fill in a lot of gaps on their long overdue album. 
and there were all these slots on the album where like Brian May was supposed to do a guest solo or Steve Lukather was supposed to do a guest solo yeah. there were just guitar shaped holes everywhere and nobody's diary was lining up auspiciously so in the end they drafted me in on Mike's recommendation just to okay to impersonate all these people, I think. It's like, can you do a Mark Knopfler fill there? Can you kind of do a Lukathelic here? And it, it started out just as this pastiche of various famous players who couldn't be on the album. Right. And then they invited me to go on tour with them, and that was a huge thing for me. Yeah. Just to be on a tour bus full of sweaty males for weeks on end. Yeah. Getting stamps in my passport. And the males quite a lot older than you, I guess, as well at the time, weren't they? So just a different... Which is a real but, baptism of fire, a proper growing yeah, up. But that was a, a really important thing for yeah. me because I'd never toured like that before. Yeah. It's like, okay, if you want to play music for a living, this is something you need to know about yourself. Can you hold it together? Can you stay sane Yeah. whilst on the road? And could you? Was that? Yeah, I discovered <laughs> that I quite liked it. I mean, okay. Fortunately, that tour was like all good people. Yeah. There was a good energy. Um, Can you remember, um, you know, what was your kind of favourite guitar solo-y, riff -y thing at the time? Was there a particular song or a particular, you know, what, was it the Brian May one or the Mark Knopfler one or the Steve Lukather one that you sort of... Um, I don't really remember. I just, I remember being happy to be on that album in general. Yeah. The, the, the vivid memory is going into the studio on the first day and they say, okay, this is the first track you'll be playing on. And they play me the, the guide track. Yeah. And it sounds amazing. And then I discovered that it sounds amazing because they have Vinnie Colaiuta on drums and Tony Levin on bass and I think Elliot Randall on rhythm guitar. And it's like, okay, this is living. Yes. I could get used to this. Uh, so it was interesting to take that stuff out on the road. Yeah. And in a typical Asia gig, we would have to play all of the early stuff, like Heat of the Moment and Only yeah. Time Will Tell and stuff like that, but also this slightly more AOR-flavoured pseudo-Steely Dan. Right, okay. Kind of hyper-produced stuff. Yeah, yeah which is what the band were doing around the start of this millennium. Yeah. That's, that's so it was kind of a fun gig from a guitar perspective. You got to cover different ground. And was that, uh, was that your earliest, no, not earliest, but when did the, the sort of the, the prog kind of, I suppose that's what you, you talked about Zappa, didn't you, earlier on? Was that, was that, you know, were you sort of feeling that was kind of where that, um, that love of that form of music had kind of come from? I guess. I mean, the, it's a funny thing because now, having played with Stephen Wilson, mm. and I have some kind of window of access into that world of largely British prog, that yeah. tradition, yeah. and Asia to some extent. Yeah. Although, in retrospect, that was more of a manufactured pop group using famous prog elements. Right. It's like, let's round up all these kind of celebrities who are Celebrity writing 20 problems. minute pieces of music for their triple gatefold vinyl and put them <laughs> together and tell them to write pop songs. Right, okay. And that's really what the Asia formula was. Oh, okay. But I've kind of glanced at the world of prog from different angles, and yeah, it wasn't a huge part of my growing up. I didn't listen to a lot of Yes or King Crimson or anything right. like that. The stuff I do remember was Jethro Tull, okay. which was amazing. And I'm sure you will get some YouTube comments about how I look like Ian Anderson. Wow, it's easy. It's fine. Yes, it's easy. I isn't once it? met Ian Anderson's son at a Joe Satriani gig and couldn't resist saying to him, I bet I get compared to your dad more, yeah, more. than you do. And <laughs> oh, that, that, that just seemed to have everything. That's it interesting. Like perfectly about the, executed and have this folky element. Yeah, because I, I, I always thought that the, the sort of the prog 
thing was uh, more by desire than almost by... It was just luck know, of the draw, really. Luck, I mean, to yeah. me, music is music. It's either good or it's not good. I don't yeah. care too much about swearing allegiance to a certain yeah. style yeah. of music. It, I like being able to mix and match. So, so, the, so the the Asia thing happened, and you toured with them, and you were on the album with them, and it, and it's after that then, is it that the that um, the erotic cakes thing came together? Yeah, right. Okay, fine. And was that? Uh, did you tour erotic cakes much, or was that? Uh, we tried. We had this core band with my brother Seth playing yeah. bass and Pete yeah. Riley playing drums, and yeah. we we did a little bit of touring, but it was mostly one-off gigs, and right? Trade shows and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, it didn't immediately take off. So and honestly, it was such produced, layered music on the album that trying to make it work as a trio. Right, difficult and to do. It seemed to it? lose a lot yeah. in the translation. After that erotic cakes thing, that you thought, okay, I probably, you know, career-wise, 
I'm going to be, you know, essentially a hired gun now, or did you always think, no, I'm just going to keep trying to do my own music, or...? Well, I've never really had a plan. I'm <laughs> the, the world's worst businessman. <laughs> I, I can't kind of visualise where I'll be in five years' time or where I want to be. Yeah. I I'll be at an airport in two weeks. I can visualise that. Yeah. But anything beyond that, you know, it's, it's not one of my natural strengths. But what I do is try and stay open to any potential opportunity and every time a, po a possibility presents itself I just judge it on the basis of whether I think it would be fun whether it would be interesting yeah whether I feel that my particular skill set would be able to enrich that music in any way and the weirder the better because you had a you had a, a couple of years didn't you where you were where you were doing a sort of a relatively mainstream kind of poppy I don't think anybody necessarily saw that as you know, oh yes, you know, that band needs a guitarist. I put Guthrie in that, you know, that was a little bit like, hello, you know, the dizzy stuff and, you know, but... Um, well, yeah, the dizzy stuff came about through the Young Punks. Yeah. And the Young Punks is the brainchild of a guy called Hal Ritson. Right. Who I think is pretty well known in house music circles and his production skills seem to be highly prized. But his yeah. twist on the whole dance music thing is he's the guy who understands real instruments. Right. He's the guy with the phone book. So if you want a Bulgarian choir or a string section or an amazing sax player or whatever, yeah. he can source those humanoids and add them to your otherwise electronic yeah. recording. So he's kind of found a cool niche for himself in that world, but there's, there's a part of him that's still a muso. Yeah. We, we used to play songs like Waves when we yeah. were 21 years old yeah. back in the day. Uh, so I've always kind of been in touch with Hal. Yeah. And I've done a lot of sample recreation work with his company, and sometimes I'll hear myself on like the, the Sugar Babes Christmas singles, and it's like, oh, I remember that four-bar loop. But is that, that's what, that's yeah. kind of what I was I was getting at, really. You know, you've come from this um, heavy kind of you know guitar-centric, whether it's your own stuff or you know, a, well, I suppose Asia's a bit almost everything-centric, isn't it? But you know, big instrumental kind of stuff, and then you're in a band where you, you might go you know 10 songs of just you know where it's just little funk chop you know did that ever sort of you know did that bother you or you know do you sort of thinking oh gosh I'm bored of this now or is it just no, it's all there's, music there's always and a, a kind of zen aspect whatever you're playing however monotonous or simplistic it might seem there's still a challenge is like how perfectly can I play this yeah I remember spending a summer doing a lot of Motown tribute gigs mm -hmm. with this this big elaborate band with many costume changes and stuff like that and I'd be the guitar player and all you have to do is if you can do that you've got the gig but, but how much can you lock in with the snare you know how yeah. short and choppy can you make those two chords it comes down to like nanosecond timing and yeah. it becomes like meditation almost I want to see how perfect I can make this and I'm happy to do that it doesn't have to be me on a pedestal with the, the fan blowing my hair around, doing sweep-picking stunts. You know, I don't need that, necessarily. Yeah. So I'm perfectly happy doing a pop gig thing. Dizzy, I was particularly happy about. Yeah. Um, because we got, we got that gig on the basis that the Electric Proms approached Dizzy and mm -hmm. said, we've got you a choir and a string section. Mr. Rascal, would it be too much trouble for you to source the rock band that right. goes along with this? And Dizzy's people just reached out to Hal because we'd done some sample re yeah. replay work. Yeah. And 
I remember us all trying to figure out how to be a rock band and play grime. Because yeah. you listen to the recording, there's no real instrument presence there. It's all chopped up samples. And yeah. I went through this whole thought process of I need the world's biggest pedal board or I need MIDI guitar or just trying to put on the hat of a musician trying to integrate with the electronic world. And in the end, we realised, no, we should just be a punk band. Right. Because that's absolutely the spirit of grime. Just, just play that. just basic rock and roll stuff and play it with yeah. attitude and it seemed to work with what yeah. Dizzy was doing and I'm yeah. really kind of proud of what happened there because it seemed like the meeting of these two disciplines instead of the musos in this corner of the ring and the, the electronic people in that corner of the ring scowling at each other but it was <laughs> genuine collaboration and something cool came out of it. Yeah, I, I mean we were watching a little bit of the, the Dizzy stuff on YouTube before you came down and, it, and I, I know exactly what you mean. It, it absolutely does work. Um, and it is a it's a cool blend of and it works live as well it really it, you know yeah. it's exciting to watch I think so one of my favorite memories was doing a we did a lot of rehearsal without Dizzy mm -hmm. the idea was that we would be a well-oiled machine and then Dizzy would come in yeah he's a pretty well-prepared guy I've yeah. never seen him make a mistake you know he's always present he's yeah. always ready to do the gig yeah. but he turned up at the rehearsal and at some point, I think he started singing a bass line or singing a horn melody or something, yeah. and the band instantly played it back for him. And you could see this light bulb. It's like, hang on, real musicians. It was like a, the kid in the candy store thing. Yeah. And you, you could see him kind of thinking, wow, this, this has so much potential. I've spent all, this, all these years with an Akai MPC. Yeah. Meanwhile, mammal life forms <laughs> can kind of understand what you're programming them with. Yeah. All you have to do is sing it to them and they'll play it back. And Oh, it was cool. a, kind of a nice moment. Yeah, I was like, okay, you're getting something out of this as well. So after the dizzy thing, then where do we go from there? Is that into aristocrats kind of time, or is there a gap? Um, let me think. I honestly don't remember. <laughs> well, the, the aristocrats have been going for about five years. Right. I don't remember how many years ago the dizzy thing was. It was a, probably about. I think it was 2009, something like that. So there probably isn't much of a gap. Um, I expect, you know, a, a busy year or two of clinics and yeah. demos and stuff, and then into the aristocrats. So uh, how, did you, how did you meet the, the, the two other guys, and what was the thinking behind forming that band? Uh, the band told us to form it. Right. It was one of those things, almost a chance meeting. Okay. Uh, Marco and Brian had been booked to do a 30-minute gig at something called the Bass Bash, mm -hmm. which is, much as the name would suggest, a yes. bass-centric party yeah. that happens to coincide with the NAMM show in Anaheim every year. And it's actually a really good place to go if you're a guitar player and you want the world to leave you alone. You <laughs> hide amongst the bass players and you can just have a normal hang and not awesome. smile at iPhones all day. So <laughs> the Bass Bash was my little best-kept secret yep. thing to do after a heavy day of being screamed Namming. at and screaming yes. at people at NAMM. Um, but those guys had a 30-minute slot there, and originally Greg Howe was meant to be the guitar player, and then he had to pull out at very short notice. Yeah. And I guess Brian felt responsible for filling this Greg Howe-shaped hole in the lineup. Yeah. Uh, some people on Facebook recommended me. He sent me an email, don't suppose you're coming to Nam. would you like to play with us? Um, so I said, okay. So we did the gig, you know, we walked onto the, the stage just as three strangers who were yeah. contractually obliged to play for 30 minutes. And at the end of the gig, 
we walked off the stage like, we need to do more of this okay. because there was this kind of cool telepathic yeah everyone is playing for the same reasons kind of energy that we all felt because that that's the you know talking to you um on and off over the, the last four or five years it's always felt to me that um the aristocrats has become and we and we must talk about Stephen Wilson because that was obviously mega as well. But the aristocrats has kind of become something in your, you know, it's obviously fulfilling a something much more emotional and deep than just it's another gig. You know, it seems to me that's that's your that's your baby. You know, of what you're it's it's this. Um, I've been waiting for an excuse to shoehorn in a Simpsons reference. You know, the school <laughs> orchestra in the Simpsons. Yes. Uh, the teacher is Mr. Margot. Right. And generally, that's it's not a great orchestra. <laughs> yep. Um, there's one episode where someone comes into the, the rehearsal room while the, the orchestra is playing and mutters something in Mr. Margot's ear and, ah, OK, I have to go for a minute. I'll be right back. And as soon as Mr. Largo leaves the room, one of the kids in the orchestra says, now we can play the forbidden music. <laughs> uh, that's kind of the aristocrats for me. Everyone gets to play the forbidden music. Okay. Everyone can be as childish and naughty and silly yep. and joyful, I guess, as yep. we like. And I really like the, the way our three personalities come together because yep. you know, everyone can play complicated music to some extent. Yeah. But it's not at all, hey, check us out, tremble at the might of our chops. It's yeah. just, it's kind of funny to be able to do this. How can we turn this into something enjoyable? Is, is that um, a conscious, I, I remember uh, in the early um, sort of prototyping of your, of your Charvel guitar here, I remember talking to you about, um, you hadn't quite got the pick, I can't remember if it was the pickups or the pickup switching or whatever. There was a sound you were looking for and you described it to me as your sort of like comedy sound. And and I and it, I had this sort of vision, if you like, of the aristocrats. Is is it's it is more than just um, playing songs, isn't it? It's it's trying to tell a story and evoke emotions, you know, almost perhaps like a an actor or a poet would or something like that. But so you know, and it and it never really struck me. It's like, well, what did he, you know? What, what does that mean? That's my comedy sort of sound. But you know, what, I honestly can't remember why I would have said that. But. It sounds maybe, like something I would say. They might not have been the exact words that you used, but there, there was a, there was a, there was obviously a sort of a frivolous lick that you wanted to throw into a song, and 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 having a like a good guitar tone for that, how we perceive as a good guitar, yeah. would have been inappropriate, and it sort of almost needed like a, a comedy, guitar tone. I, I don't know which the song was or what the lick was or anything like that, but it, it, it right from then I think I'd begun to appreciate that, you know, the Aristocrats wasn't. Um, you know, it wasn't just going to be a mainstream, you know, guitar experience. It's a different thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, one of my favourite things about it is it's not a guitar experience. It's yeah. about all three people, and in particular, it's about what happens between the three people. Yeah. And if I could somehow teleport myself out of this body and be in the audience and watch an Aristocrats gig, yeah. I think what I would enjoy the most is just seeing the eye contact and seeing yeah. how people respond to each other. Is Rather than just, I, now I'll watch the drums and see what amazing drum things are being accomplished. And now I'll look yeah. at the guitar and I'll stare at his fingers for a while. You know, the, the exciting stuff happens yeah. between the musicians. Did it's you... such a de democratic operation as well. You know, it's about all three of us equally, which feels kind of right to me. So what was it, if we talk about the Stephen Wilson thing, because obviously Stephen, um, you know, he's... 
he's just a huge, huge, uh, you know, superstar and playing, you know, big sold out theater style venues with phenomenal music, you know, the, the level of the musicians in the band, you know, lots of instruments that you wouldn't, histor you wouldn't naturally expect to see in, you know, your average kind yeah. of rock and roll band. Uh, lots of incredible staging and lighting and all that kind of stuff. So what, what was that, um, you know, what, what was the Stephen Wilson tour like to do? Um, it's you know. good. It was in some ways the opposite of the Aristocrats thing. Yeah. Um, because the, the overall mood of that music is a lot more somber. Yeah. It's probably happier than Radiohead, but it's not wall-to-wall jokes. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a gloomier aspect to it. So, like I said earlier, it's, it's nice sometimes just to yeah. change modes yeah. and not to have to play the same character all the time. So it was fun for me to have somewhere where I could be a little more brooding and dark and miserable because that's what the music requires. Yeah. Um, Is it, I, I, again, and I, I, I vaguely remember that um, somebody saying that um, despite the fact that the music was, was quite... Um, you know, clearly quite proggy and, you know, and obviously gave you plenty of scope to sort of, you know, go off on one if you needed to. But that, that Stephen was reining you back, you know, almost like, so it was almost like you were going somewhere and it was like, and maybe that's a bit, you know, it doesn't need to be that kind of out there. But do you, do you ever, do you, do you, you know, do you remember anything like that from the, from the Stephen? Well, I think Stephen has a kind of allergy to certain guitar things. Right. Obviously he's a guitar player himself. He yeah. has his own opinion yeah. about a lot of things. Uh, he hates chorus pedals, for instance. You are not allowed <laughs> to use a chorus pedal if you are on Stephen's stage. Uh, little things like that. Uh, but in the, the guitar he hears in his head is very much not American. There's right. a certain kind of wide vibrato that he doesn't enjoy. Right. And he doesn't like more than a certain number of notes per second. Right. And that's a whole interesting area for debate. And we've, we've had discussions about this. It's like, why is it that you hate it when a guitar player goes above 60 miles per hour, yeah. but you're fine with it when the sax player does exactly the same thing? And I guess part of it is just the tradition of the instrument. When right. you think of a certain instrument, you think of the history of that instrument and what famous guitar players have done in yeah. your chosen field of music for the past few generations. And I guess that the fast thing just evokes kind of poodle hair and animal print spandex and all of that stuff and Stephen doesn't enjoy that I, at all. I, so. I, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly remember seeing a clip uh, of, of one of the, the tracks that you were doing on... on um... Oh, I'm going to get shot now because what's the album with the word Raven in it? Uh, the Raven That Refused to Sing. The Raven That Refused to Sing is the one. There's a, there's a scene where you're playing some crazy legato thing and then with your other hand you're moving where you want the capo to be and it's all seamless and not even think and it's just like ah oh, it's just it's such a different level of ability here compared you know so I mean you must have had some fun though didn't you I mean in that that was because that was another crack band as well that you put together wasn't yeah. it so I mean the thing that attracted me to that whole operation was the way I interpreted the whole Raven era in particular mm. was let's get a band of people with jazz fusion type chops yeah. to play 70s prog. Right. And that way you can fix the one thing that arguably was always missing in actual 70s prog. There's not a lot of real-time improvisation and interaction. Right. It seems a lot more scripted and planned. And maybe the gig would be the same from one night to the next. Yeah. But if you draft in, for instance, the guy who played keyboards with Miles Davis yeah. and a sax player, 
and suddenly you can kind of reinterpret that whole prog tradition with a, an extra level of looseness and yeah. flexibility. Yeah. And I thought, cool, I'd like to be on board with something like that because I can imagine how some of what I do might fit into that. Yeah. Nice. So that was, I said that you did that for about two years, I think, didn't you? The Stephen Wilson um, thing. Was it maybe two longer? Two albums, and I'd say like one and a half album cycles of touring. Oh, fair and enough. then it reached a point where just calendar clash yeah. became an issue. And it's uh, been pretty much exclusively aristocrats since, hasn't it? Yeah, well, here's my thing. Whenever I have calendar issues, I just ask myself, okay, there's, there, there's more than one situation here. Yeah. Which situation needs me personally yeah. more? And with the Aristocrats, that band needs all three members. You can't yeah. replace anyone in that band because yeah. it ceases to be the Aristocrats. Yeah. So I feel a certain duty to that. Whereas with Stephen's music, yeah. I'm not saying you could get any old idiot to play Stephen's music. It does require a certain level of competence. Yeah. But you could get someone who isn't me to yeah. play the guitar in Stephen's music and it will still be a great show. Have you, have you been to a show where Dave Kilmans has um, been playing? And The only one I've seen was the Albert Hall show yeah. with all the, the special guests. So I got to play a little bit and yeah. then watch from the side of the stage. What do you um, do when you see another guitarist sort of interpretation of a piece? Do you sort of sit, do you, you know, just go, oh, I prefer my version, or do you sit and go, oh, Well, not at all, because uh, it's Dave. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Dave and I are really old friends, <laughs> yeah. and I, I love Dave's playing, and I knew the gig would be in safe hands. Yeah. So if anything, I'm there at the side of the stage watching him and just smiling. It's like, cool. Yeah. See, Stephen, I told you he wouldn't screw it up. No, he's very, very cool player. In fact, we should get him for a Captain Meets interview. That would be fun as well. Let's do a little bit of a rig rundown. I, I, I kind of, for me, you've always seemed to be a super strap player, uh, or as long as I can remember you. In fact, you know, I say as long as I can remember. I don't know my memory, I can't recall really what your sort of number one guitar was during the sort of erotic cakes sort of period. Were you still, was that Sir back in those days? Mm, or was that pre-Sir? That was borderline. I think I just hooked up with Sir yeah. when we were recording that album. Yeah. So some, some bits of it were my trusty PRS. Oh, okay. oh, of course. Because I was playing one of yes. those. For I do a long remember time. that. That was I, guitarist I, of the round about the guitarist of the year stuff was yeah. PRS, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, my first. And what was that? Decent, a custom twenty four. Yeah. Yeah. My first decent guitar ever was a Gibson SG. Yeah. And then the PRS thing seemed like that's one way that you can combine yeah. what we like about brand F and brand yeah. G yeah. in one instrument. So you yeah. can either have the glued neck mahogany-centric lump yeah. and then try and conjure up strattiness yeah. using wiring and trickery. Or you can start with the strat formula and yeah. put these things in there and yeah. try and kind of create the, the more Gibson-y yeah. tones that way around. So different approaches to the one guitar that can do everything ideal. Yeah. Um, so I was playing that PRS for a long time because it was unusually stratty. Yeah. Just acoustically it was I don't know, just it had more brightness and yeah. sparkle than most PRSs. Yeah. It was a little bit of a freak, yeah. I think. And 
it seemed to be nicely placed between those two camps. Have you still got that guitar? Uh, technically, yes, but it's, <laughs> it's sleeping somewhere in the US. I think it lives in Las Vegas now. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, one, one of these times when I fly over to the US, I will actually take a detour and collect it. Oh. It would be nice to see it. Again. Yeah, I'm sure it would. It's a great so, you, guitar. so PRS and then, the, so the first, the first sort of uh, venture into the sort of the full super strat thing was the Sur. Yeah, um, I met hook up. I met Sir Guitars when I was doing a Confidence clinic yep. at a shop called Tone Merchants in maybe 2004, 2005. Mm -hmm. And the guy who was organising the clinic there said, what do you think of this? Yeah, And just gives me this Sir to try out. And it was amazing. Yeah. Because they do good work. Right? They are, for um, sure. It for seemed sure. very perfectly made and perfectly intonated yep. and very resonant and covered a lot of sonic ground. Yeah. So I ended up using mostly a strat style guitar which you hear yeah. on songs like waves yeah. and uh, mahogany humbucker beast yeah for all the meat and potato stuff yeah and that's that's the bulk of the erotic cake sound you hear the prs on things like fives the solo in fives was okay. flown in from the demo I think, right yeah. okay so the the at the end the the, the charvel um guitar is is a little different, I suppose, to the Sur in that it's because um, the the well, is it, is it sort of different, really? I mean, it's got a slightly different sort of trem system on it, well, hasn't it? It's yeah, the the story is actually very different. With mm -hmm. Sur, I had a signature model for a while, mm -hmm. and it was great. Um, but it was more a case of we build this guitar yeah. already. You can choose what color it will be or what pickups will be in there. Right. But you're basically modifying this template that already exists. Yeah. Whereas this thing, Charvel said, we're happy to go right back to basics yeah. and just construct whatever guitar you think would work for you. We can start from scratch. You have this crack team of like Fender Custom Shop yeah. beasts yeah. who will listen to your every whim. So there are certain things that are unique about this that yeah. wouldn't have happened if I'd started just with a stock Charvel and said, will you change this or change yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, stuff like the, the neck joint, that's what they do. That's yeah. Charvel, I can't take any credit for that. This I stole from Warren Demartini. Yeah. So if Warren has the wheel so that yep. you can adjust your truss rod easily, I would like that as well. Yeah. That was me. Um, I see the Fender style. A, yeah, this isn't a stand-up kind of gig, yep. but if it were, that would be hooked over there. Yeah. I like the fact that when you're recording, you can do that, and the jack yep. socket's not in the way. Yeah. Uh, the pickups were custom wound just for this guitar, and this is actually where most of that two-year period went. Yeah, because it took a while to perfect this thing. It was the, the bridge. What did you start off with on there? Did the traditional locking nut or a traditional strap? Oh, I was determined not to have locking nut. I hate locking nuts because I, I cut myself. Yeah. Um, this string mute thing, you can destroy one of these in a gig just by yeah. sliding over a Floyd yeah. locking nut a few times, and you can't you can't do your Jerry Donahue stuff there. You can't do drop D tuning yeah, easily. Yeah, sure. With a floating bridge, so my my starting point was. Can we try the the old-fashioned Brad Gillis style Floyd Rose with no fine tuners and oh, okay. just not bother with the locking nut? Yeah. Um, if you make the nut properly and the, the slots are the right yeah. size and the right angle and the breaking angle where the string goes over there, yeah. as long as you get all that stuff right and locking tuners don't hurt, yeah. you should be able to eliminate all the evil friction at that end. Yeah. Whereas at this end, with a traditional style bridge, the, the string is basically bending 90 degrees. Yeah. And if you look... If you like bending too far, you will have friction problems at the saddle. Yeah. So I like the idea of lock at this end, but not at this end. 
and then if you don't have a locking nut, you don't need fine tuners. So all of that metal work just goes away, and now it, it feels nice. And how do you get round the? Because I mean, so much of your playing is is uh, sort of you know two note little licks where maybe one of the strings is bent and the other one isn't. How do you get a? You know, how do you compensate for the fact that the the the, the, the string that you're not bending yeah. should go slightly flat. I mean, it is an issue, certainly. Right. Obviously, if you bend one string, all the others go flat. Yeah. So you can either you can either lean on the bridge slightly to counteract that pull, or okay. you can cheat. And I'm proud to say I cheat, ladies and gentlemen. This is a treble note, um, and if you tighten these things, it basically becomes a fixed bridge. Right. And then, if you need drop detuning, which I do for about half of an aristocrat's yeah, gig, yeah. Uh, you only have to adjust that rather than adjusting all six strings repeatedly. Um, so this seems like a good solution to most of my guitar playing problems. Yeah, and amp-wise, obviously you were a long-time Cornford user, and you know more recently uh, using another of Martin Kidd's fine inventions. Yeah. Um, what was it that uh, you know? What is it that you like about his kind of signature tone, if you like? You know, what is it that, that appeals to you? I'm not good at describing tones. I guess I don't spend enough time on gear forums. I don't know <laughs> the the vocabulary that's yeah. required for that. But in basic terms, I think the guitar that Martin hears in his head sounds yeah. a bit like the guitar I hear in my head, and right. I can recognise that in the way he voices things. And I like that you can have bucket loads of gain on this, but still there's clarity and yeah. you still hear variations in pick attack. Yeah. And I'm, I'm all about embracing the fact that when you play guitar, you're a human, you are inconsistent. Yeah. Um, I don't want every note to sound exactly the same as the note that preceded it. Yeah. I don't want perfectly even pick attack and perfectly even dynamics. Yeah. I like imperfection. You know, I. So when you listen to a phrase, every note has some kind of quirk about it. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's cool if you can have an amp that's really high gain, but still allows you to be flawed and human. So right. it makes a difference how you hit the note. We, we had an interesting, or you, you hit upon an interesting uh, philosophy, because you, you, I know you're a big um, Axe FX and Kemper user as well. Um, and I think you're, you know, very well positioned to sort of to sort of say, um, what it, you know, the situations where you think that's an amazing piece of kit, but the situation where you don't, you know, you still want to go back to a guitar amplifier. So, you yeah, know, can you sum up, your little, you know, pretty much what we were talking about before, how you what you feel about? Okay, this is just my two cents, I guess. In terms of amp modelling, there has never been a better time to be alive. Yeah, you know, things are better than they've ever been and better than we could have imagined yeah. they would be. If you think back to when the pod came out, yeah. everyone was marvelling at this kidney bean, but you think how much closer things have got since For that sure. early pod. Yeah. Um, it's still not quite there, I don't think. Because um, we talked a bit, you were sort of saying there's, um, you know, for, for, for in-ear gigs and audiences and all that kind of stuff, yeah. really now, you know the, the the Kemper Axe Effects thing, or you know, I'm sure uh, there will be other brands out there will go. Don't forget us, and I'm sure I'm sure they are as well. Yeah. Um, Get your own YouTube video. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm sure they. You know, it, it's just a, 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 a solution that no one is going to sort of go. Oh, I didn't really like the sound of that. But you you still said there's there's just something 
about sitting in front of a valve amplifier with a reasonable volume, and you, you talked about yeah. even, possibly even being a placebo effect. I think it's probably a tiny bit more than that, but can you just expand on what you okay, meant about uh, that? For instance, uh, for the Hans Zimmer gig, I used a Kemper. Mm -hmm. The sound man loved me for using a Kemper. He said, it sounds great in the front of house. Yeah. And if you imagine that there are 80 people on stage and some of them are playing delicate, quiet orchestral instruments, this yeah. is not a time to unleash the stack of doom. Yeah. This is not a time to be selfish because it's not your gig. It's not yeah. about the guitar. It's about serving the music. So there I, there I was for the whole hands tour with in-ear monitors and a Kemper, not moving any air on stage at all. Yeah. And it did the job yeah. because I was playing guitar parts. Yeah. Um, that's a slightly different thing to like doing a solo gig or doing an aristocrats thing where part of my job is to feel inspired Yeah, so that I want to do unpredictable things and I guess every player is somewhere on this spectrum But I'm very much Kind of dependent on what I hear coming out of the amp the kind of tone that I'm hearing Directly informs the kind of things that I want to play. I yeah. hear a certain kind of guitar sound and it's like, Okay, what notes would I like to hear? Yeah delivered in that accent um, and there's something about just standing next to a real amp yeah there's still just that little bit more organic yeah it's for me and I did the AB thing yeah with uh, a high profile modeling unit which will go nameless yeah and one of these amps and yeah. I was a being the two yeah. And I concluded that what happens in the front of house is close enough that no one in the audience would be able to tell the difference. Yeah. However, if I can tell the difference, yeah. it will make me play differently. Yeah. And that's where the placebo thing comes in. What if I'm wrong? What if it actually feels exactly the same on stage, but I don't realize it? <laughs> and some stubborn Luddite part of my brain says, you'd play better if you had a real amp. Yeah. Maybe some of it's that, but also I just feel more punch still yeah. from a real amp. It, it's so, it's like 30 watts of that versus 600 watts of solid state power amp. Yeah. This somehow feels more visceral. It's, it's so, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm constantly torn between, there's something in my brain, well, not even something, I know what it is. There's a romantic in my brain yeah. that wants to justify why we should carry on making this kind of product as opposed to going down the digital yeah. route. And I, and as you say, I, I am torn between how much of that is placebo, how much of that is because something is actually happening. Um, I, I know it from a video that I've done recently where, where um, I wasn't allowed to know which was which amplifier. Um, I uh, most of the time said I preferred the sound of the Kemper to the profiled valve amplifier. Yet, if I'm in a demo where I know it's yeah. the Kemper versus the, you know, because I, I can see it, I'm always preferring the valve amplifier. Yeah. You know, so you sit there just going, there must be some weird thing. But I, I'm, a, I'm a big, a huge believer in what you said then about um, really, if you want to take your playing to the best level that it can possibly be, everything's got to be right. So even if it's placebo, it doesn't really matter. It's like, because... Yeah, whatever gets the best result out of you. Yeah, for um, sure. But with the modelling thing, it's a law of diminishing returns now, isn't it? We're approaching the limit, and that the curve is kind of doing that, and we're getting closer and closer yeah. and closer. And how can it? Every new development makes like ten percent of the difference that the last new development made, and we'll yep. never quite get there. 
we'll never achieve total parity. We'll just get closer and closer. Yeah, I don't know what. Yeah, I mean, you're you're completely right. Until I don't know what it is about. I suppose it probably is the um, what's the word for when something isn't the same every time. You know, it's, it, it is that sort of wonderful unexpectedness of maybe what a valve amplifier might do. That yeah. maybe that's where digital, because you know, realistically, if you get right into the nuances, this amplifier will never sound quite the same twice. No, because there's always going to be perhaps a slightly different voltage or the wear of the valves well, it or whatever. Probably sound better at the end of the gig than it did at the start of the gig yeah. because it's cooking. Yeah. Whereas I suppose that's with with a digital product, it's kind of well, that's how it's going to sound for its the yeah. duration of its life. But uh, we could go on about this, you know. And I said I don't really. I, I I'm just happy now to be honest. That there is a that there is a really viable digital solution because uh, that's the one thing with valve amplifiers is they can often be impractical to take places, can't they? Yeah. You know. So um, yeah, the digital solutions are great. But I don't yeah. think amp builders need to worry. There will always be a home for a real valve amp. People well, will always want that to some extent. Oh, well, that's yeah. It's the same reason. Why, why would people want a Rolex? Our phones tell the time more accurately yeah. than a Rolex, and yet people still want it. There's something about that craftsmanship and the yeah. idea of an object that's designed I, to I do a certain. So like you say, Liz, it's not performance anymore, is it? It's this at least is this idea of this romantic view of what yeah. gear should be, as opposed to. You know, and it's uh, inspiring, isn't it? Yeah. You think of, this is the real thing. This is a, a tub full of valves and transformers, and I can yeah. smell the heat coming off of it. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes you play differently. <laughs> I agree. And and just uh, before we wrap up, I'm, I mean, I've seen you do stuff like this, where there's like no pedals, and you get the most insane guitar sound out of you know your fingers and this guitar and, and the, the amps you're using. And I've seen you traveling with a pedal board that's the size of a door and got a flip top on it, so there's another yeah. row of pedals underneath it as well. You know, do you have a, a you know, is, is, there, is there an ultimate kind of setup for you, or do you, you know, is it just whatever you need to do the gig? Or? It's that. You listen to the music and then say, well, what? What gear impediments are standing between me and being able to yeah. provide the, the optimum guitar tones to enrich this music? Um, there's something I really like about not having a bunch of effects. Yeah. There's something nice about just guitar straight into the amp, yeah. be in the same room as the amp, be close to the speaker so yeah. the speaker and the string can hear each other and you get that nice feedbacky, sustainy thing. And um, just maybe a bit of ambience if you're in an yeah. unforgiving room. Yeah. There's something I really enjoy about yeah. playing in that pure, uncontaminated yeah. way. But it doesn't work in every gig. I, I couldn't just turn up and be Blues Guthrie and do the Stephen Wilson gig. You need effects <laughs> for that because that's a big part of the sonic picture. Oh, well, that's cool. So, so no, I'm. I, well, look, it's been a super pleasure coming up. What, what have you got? What have we got to expect from you? More aristocrat stuff, or? You know, might there be a solo album, or what, what might um, what might be in the what's twenty seventeen bringing for us? Okay, there will be a lot of gigging. Uh, I'm probably not allowed to say what kind of gigging <laughs> it is. It's something I've done before, and there will be a lot more of it. Right. Uh, by the looks of things. But you can't so say. I, I shouldn't say. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, aristocrats wise, we have maybe three weeks more of touring. Right. And the one part of the globe we have neglected thus far is South and Central America. Okay. So we go there, we do South and Central America, and then we have to admit 
that's yeah, it. That's, that's the end it. of the, the album cycle. Yeah. We've pretty much run out of places to play. So then we just relax for a bit, regroup, and start thinking about the next trio album. Oh, In terms God. of solo album, I'd like to hear my next solo album as well. Right. I'm really curious, because it's been a while, and Erotic Cakes is starting to smell a bit weird now. Oh, it's, uh, in a good way, though. It smells great. Well, look, I really, really appreciate you giving up a day to come and spend some time with us here. I, I've found it incredibly informative and inspiring to listen to you for the last hour or so. Um, Pleasure was all mine. No, thank you so much for coming along. So anyway, guys, if, if you're not familiar with Guthrie's work, you know, where have you been? Uh, but I'll put some links in the description below. You can find out more. But for now... This is the wonderful Mr. Guthrie Govan. I've been the captain, and we'll see you next time. listening to our latest podcast if you enjoyed it hit that subscribe button see you next time 